on the set. Okay, everybody, quiet on the set. Scene one, take ten, Marker. From the studio of the Modern School of Film, welcome to Murmur. My name is Robert Malazzo, and over the next hour together, we'll explore where culture meets craft. Today on Murmur, The Scarecrow's Dilemma. Filmmaker Joshua Oppenheimer is with us. Welcome. Welcome to Murmur. Welcome back to Murmur. Robert Malazzo here with you. I am the founder of the Modern School of Film. With you every week, www.murmur, M-U-R-M-U-R, radio, one word, dot com. You can subscribe and download iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher. One episode a week. That's the ticka-taka of it. Social handles at MSF Murmur. Email me, murmurradio at gmail.com. If you have an idea, I can match the idea topic or the topic idea with a guest and we'll give you full credit. I will spare no expense to give you a phone call <laughs> and talk to you on the show and uh, integrate. Murmur Radio, welcome back. Or welcome, welcome. Today on the show, a fascinating guy from the external, I haven't spoken to him yet, well today, Joshua Oppenheimer, the filmmaker. So when Joshua, or when I thought to have Joshua on the show, there's so much ground we could cover, but I guess my first bit of resonance or my first call to call him was this idea of intelligence. I mean, on paper, Joshua has every pelt an intelligent person can mount on their wall. <laughs> he is an Oscar, in, in reverse order, he is an Oscar award-winning filmmaker, incredible documentary in clockwise way, in clockwise order now, <laughs> The Act of Killing 2012, an incredible film nominated for an Oscar, and two years later, its sequel, Look of Silence also nominated for an Oscar, so for Best Doc Feature. Now, when you look a little further back in his life, he, and again, I'm not doing this to, to be condescending or set anything up. I just want to give you, you know, if, if anyone could talk about intelligence, and it's Joshua. Harvard grad, 
PhD uh, in design from St. Martin's College of Art and Design, University of Arts of London, um, had a Marshall Scholarship, uh, was a, uh, is a film professor. Professors should be smart, right? I don't know. I, I'm a professor. Am I smart? I don't know. I can't self, I mean, people self-diagnose their intelligence. I cannot. It made me think or led me to think about this idea of intelligence. There's so many different kinds of intelligence. You know that. Emotional intelligence, social intelligence, athletic intelligence, political intelligence, of world affairs intelligence. And that's some of the ground we can cover with Joshua today because his work does seem to look at this idea of political studies, social studies through the, through the lens of film. When I watch his films, when I watch films, I well, it's located with Joshua. When I watch Joshua's films, I wonder, you know, what is what is there? What is a film, or what is any piece of information's intent? It, it, can I get smarter from watching a film? Well, I tell my students all the time, I don't get go to the film, I don't go to cinema to get the news, but a movie may inspire me to learn on my own. So, you know, that's a form of intelligence, ostensibly, this idea of self-learning. But what is intelligence? And you know, the dilemma being how much is enough? How much, intelli- how, uh, how much intelligence is enough? I almost said how much is too much, and I will, I will say that, how much is too much, because I wonder this paralysis by analysis. Now, analysis, people who analyze and criticize and critique things, you know, that intelligence is its own form of intelligence. Can we compare intelligence across these spectrum, emotional intelligence, social intelligence, musical intelligence, artistic intelligence, political intelligence? Can we compare everything? But I guess rather than define each bucket of intelligence, I want to talk to Joshua today about how much intelligence is needed to navigate. I suspect and I think, (laughs) I think this, oh man, this is going to sound rough. I I envy those who can clear their mind. It doesn't mean that smart people can't clear their mind. I do envy, I often envy the calibration of space to matter in a lot of people's thought process that I don't possess. This isn't a hidden compliment. I'm not saying I wish I was less smart. I'm saying I sometimes, I'm a devourer of information. So I devour. And I think in that devouring, in that consumption of information, am I building intelligence or am I simply accumulating? Different conversation for a different day, or maybe we'll see if if I can work it in with Joshua. Joshua also won um, the MacArthur uh, grant, uh, MacArthur Award. It's known as the Genius Award. I think sometimes people shy away from that. I want to talk to Joshua about this word genius. Talk to him about a little bit about the origin of the word genius. It was the original origin was um, original origin. The origin. <laughs> See, sometimes I make mistakes, and I still consider myself an intelligent person. You know, saying the original origin is redundant, but I don't think I'm any less smart than I was before I said that. So this idea of intelligence, it's almost like a good wine. A good wine is a wine you like, or a wine you think is good, whether it's five dollars or five thousand dollars. Some wine connoisseurs may have stopped listening to the show after saying that, but 
I do believe that because I think intelligence is a kind of external definition. Oh, this person's smarter. This is smarter. This song is smart. Or this is a great writer. Or this is an intelligent person. I don't know how Joshua will react to this word genius. We do use it a lot. I think we overuse it. I think we overuse words like masterpiece. If we want to connect the result, the, the work of the genius as a masterpiece, I think we overuse it. It's become a marketing term. Genius has become almost a digital idea. I think that word genius is often a masculine, unfortunately. Doesn't always isn't always bestowed upon a a female, which is unfortunate. Talk to Joshua about that. It's not his fault. <laughs> I know the leg it at his feet. I just want to get his res- response. So this idea of intelligence. You know, the world now, oftentimes intelligence in the world now is used as a sort of cudgel a political wedge, you know, presidents, you don't want to be too intelligent, you don't want to be too ordinary, you want to sort of be right in the middle, a guy you can have a beer with, right? (laughs) Remember when Obama invited Skip Gates and that police officer to have a beer? (laughs) You know, that's kind of the pocket, right? You don't want to be too intelligent, God forbid. But again, I think it's unfortunate, too, that reverse, that we often look at intelligent people as uh, sort of um, synthetic, you know, that intelligence bottles them up. It de- it devours the soul in the sense of it. it you can't have soul. <laughs> you know, things that have soul, you got to have soul, right? Intelligent people are stiff, constipated emotionally. We'll talk to Joshua about that, see what he thinks. Intelligence is fickle. I'm going to claim it because also, you know, when you say you're intelligent, it sounds vain, but I'm going to use intelligence. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to surround intelligence by everything but emotion and description. And we're going to look at the use of intelligence, the misuse of intelligence and the deficit and the burden. Let's call it again. Sounds like a Werner Herzog film. The burden of intelligence. <laughs> we'll talk to Joshua about Werner as well, because there's an interesting professional connection there. The Burden of Intelligence. <laughs> I like that. A film by Errol Morris. No, that would be more of a Herzog film. Today on Murmur, Joshua Oppenheimer, Things of an Intelligent and Quasi-Intelligent Nature. Joshua Oppenheimer, coming up, now this. to Stratton and Schoenstein. We looked everywhere, sir, but... You gentlemen seen your midterm grades yet? Well, they're not posted yet, sir. I've seen them. Mr. Kroger, two C's, two D's, and an F. That's a 1.2 grade average. Congratulations, Kroger. You're at the top of the Delta Pledge class. Mr. Dorfman. Hello. 0.2. Fat, drunk, and stupid is no way to go through life, son. Mr. Hoover, president of Delta House, 1.6, four C's and an F. A fine example you set. Daniel Simpson Day has no grade point average. All courses are incomplete. Mr. Blue... Mr. Blutowski. Zero... Point zero. Now, 
I want you to tell Mrs. Stratton and Mr. Schoenstein exactly what I'm about to tell you now. What's that, sir? Route finished and favor expelled. I want you off this campus at 9 o'clock Monday morning. And I'm sure you'll be happy to know that I have notified your local draft boards and told them that you are now all, all eligible for military service. Well, out with it! As an educator, I'm always on pins and needles about the idea of intellect. I think intelligence is a double-edged sword. It, it giveth and it taketh. Um, and this climate, our current, our modern world, our modern political, emotional, artistic, communal climate, it seems to be something that we alternatively hide and and uh, display. These are strangely Gordian knots to unravel, so I needed a really smart man. I don't know if he considers himself smart. That's kind of one of the, the pre-premises of today. Uh, here to speak about this idea, the current state of intellect, intelligence, and things of that nature. He's an award-winning filmmaker, documentarian, a teacher, a MacArthur Award winner, um, 
P.S., uh, known as the Genius Award. So please welcome someone I consider a genius, Mr. Joshua Oppenheimer. Joshua, welcome to Murmur. Thank you so much, and for that outlandish introduction. <laughs> you know, we're going to use some some words today that I think are kind of part and parcel to, you know, this push-pull of, of intellect and this push-pull of being smart and knowing things. Let's start in the, in the bigger mushroom cloud and drill down in terms of your experience, which I find fascinating, and your work. Where do you think, um, on the scale, the, the sort of fictional scale of worth, where where is intelligence sit now? Is it a good time to be smart? Well, there's different kinds of, of, of intelligence, of course, and it's always a good time to be smart in a reflective, emotional, compassionate way, because uh, otherwise you do not live. Your life is squandered uh, with all, all sorts of distraction and all sorts of, even if you're viciously and cleverly pursuing ambition, which is, I think, a kind of smarts that's very much in demand right now. If you're blind emotionally and you're stupid emotionally and you're, uh, th- 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 then you're somehow missing the very essence of that, the one life you have and that there can be nothing more stupid than squandering that if one has a choice not to. I think, though, we live in a time where our leaders don't shine. Certainly, America's leaders at the moment don't shine for their emotional intelligence, but they do have kind of the shrewd, mean intelligence of some kind of terrible artificial intelligence that's designed to just maximize very limited aspects of their being, whether it's wealth and power. I think we see an incredibly smart, in the worst sense, See, see, intelligence that's morally blind is really dangerous, and intelligence that's emotionally cold is very dangerous. When you say mean intelligence, it's interesting because I was thinking of the golden mean, but I think you mean mean, as in nasty. I actually, I actually mean <laughs> nasty. I actually mean mean, and I yes, <laughs> I mean it in the sense of yeah, you were talking. About, I mean it in the sense of fearful. Uh, I think that people who are mean are often fearful. They're guilty and afraid to look at their own guilt. They are unaccepting of others because they're not accepting of themselves. Um, and I think they're, yeah, I think it's a failure of empathy and a failure of the of of that act of imagination, which is empathy. And I think that's what's hegemonic at the moment. In certainly in American society, that's not to say there's not pockets of very compassionate and thoughtful resistance that's articulate and brave and brilliant. But I think the kind of brilliance that we see in the White House at the moment is a kind of cold, cold, startling brilliance, and, and it's and it's it's terrifying. To take up a not a devil's advocacy, but a, a kind of um, vox populi, you know, words like hegemonic. Um, a word like hegemonic, if it was used in a press conference, would close the press conference down. Um, and and so it, it's an interesting. Uh, it's not a duality. Would you do you feel there's a there's a sh- not a shame, but as you say, there's a kind of political zeitgeist that has made one almost embarrassed or reluctant to to display intelligence. Is that too uh, reductive? A, a recap of what's going on too. Do you ever, fe- I guess the, the, the simple question is, do you ever feel ashamed 
or reluctant about your intelligence? I don't know that I'm so intelligent. Maybe I just, uh, you know, I live, I, you have to forgive me for the use of this word or that word because I live in Denmark. I'm doing some of my work in Danish, some of my work in, a lot of my work has been done in Indonesian. My husband's Japanese. So uh, a lot of, so so if I use odd words in English, I haven't but lived I don't in find it, 20 years. I don't find uh, it odd. I, 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 it's yeah. not an apology. It's a point that I don't, I think I'm less, I'm, I'm not terribly, self-conscious about whether I'm whether I sound intelligent or not in part because I don't I don't feel especially intelligent I think maybe what I really maybe no one who's really grappling with I, I think we all should try to grapple with the questions that are most daunting and if you had most intimidating most now I see now I'm replacing words like daunting with intimidating those questions that seem most difficult to, to answer. Those are the questions we should be exploring. If there's a mystery at the heart of something that we can't fathom, that's what we should be working on. And of course, those, the, otherwise, you're, you're, whatever intelligence you have, you're sort of frittering away. So we should try and focus on those things about reality and ourselves and humanity that trouble us the most. And when you really do that, you're always humbled by whatever it is you're looking at or working on. And then you yeah. never feel smart. Yeah. You never feel smart. And so then you don't come into a conversation like this, self-conscious about whether you look smart because you don't feel smart because right. you're dealing with things that are much bigger than you. I, I agree. And, I, that, and that's that's exactly the opposite of the kind of shrewd, strategic intelligence of the, of the sort of self-appointed mastermind. Mm. Uh, which is what I think we see in someone like Steve Bannon. We hear all these code words. We hear about the, the working class. We hear about the white working class. We hear about, uh, in contrast to the elites. And this is these are sort of these are f uh, fault lines that are being drawn that actually create a reality that isn't really the the, the reality that we need to address. It's sort of a spin on reality that. Uh, is designed so that we miss the questions. Mm. There's a construction of the white working class uh, that's been shafted by the educated elite, which is false in so many ways, in that the policies proposed by uh, the policies uh, uh, put forward by the people who are making that argument are precisely the ones that undermine uh, and make life harder for the working class, white or not white. And so it's, there's a whole way in which there's a kind of uh, uh, there's a kind of stigmatization of being intelligent or being intellectual because we're stigmatizing the elite. But that's actually, and we're and we're trying to clump all the uh, generally less right wing uh, intellectuals that come out of universities uh, as as if, as if they're all part of the elite. And that that serves only the interest of of, of those who would lie to people who actually are working class and are struggling uh, to make ends meet to, to, so that they, they blame the wrong people. Mm. Your work, we're speaking with Joshua Oppenheimer, I want to get to a little bit of your work in the sense of how it it sort of is a fascinating ref referendum, if that's even the right word. I, I'm not qualifying it because I don't want to sound smart. I just don't know if that's if I can find a better word than referendum. But it's an exploration 
of some of the historic underpinnings of the danger of intellect. You know, historically, intellects have been rounded up, <laughs> and and uh, whether it's expunged or killed. But I, I want to get to some of that. But I want to I want to let us off the hook a little bit and, and speak some uh, vocabulary with you. Um, this is a funny one. I was thinking, you know, you have a PhD. Does anyone call you doctor? No. No, I hope not. <laughs> Would that feel too ostentatious to be well, called doctor? I, <laughs> I like Dr. Oppenheimer. I, <laughs> it's like my, a Spider-Man villain. Was, uh, yeah, another J. Oppenheimer like Dr. Oppenheimer right. too, I think. Um, but, but, I mean, <laughs> the PhD was a way to keep my... Uh, visa to live in Britain as long as possible so that I could find another way to remain there. It was really like, it's a very weird thing to do a PhD in film. I actually now supervise PhDs in film. And every time I see how utterly strange, even absurd it is, I know no one calls me that. <laughs> I like it though. But anyway, I'll keep it off the record. I want to talk a little bit about the Harvard of it all in a bit, because, you know, film, this just in film can be a a sort of inadvertently or directly snobby medium. I loved uh, reading a little bit about your uh, thoughts on your own undergraduate, where you uh, at one point studied cosmology. Actually, did you know Glenn Close studied cosmology as well? I didn't. Oh, that's and, amazing. At William yeah. & Mary, yeah. You went from, and correct any of the record here, that was cosmology to philosophy to filmmaking, correct? Is that a little bit of the triptych? Yeah, I want right. to I, I want to round those up in a, in a bit because you said something which I thought was interesting about not having fil a film studies background as a film major. And the question one is, did you ever feel apologetic about that? Do you now? Um, because I do think there is a kind of snobbery in film studies and in film that if you don't know who the Lumiere brothers are, you're some, you're less than, or if you don't know who Robert Flaherty was, you're less than. Did you ever feel that? Did you ever feel that in your cinema uh, globe trotting or in your cinema studies? Well, I was always behind um, because I, I, I started studying film a little later than my fellow film students who had, had been introduced to some of the kind of canon of great film. But of course, now we're in a time where there's so, you know, it's now 20, 25 years later, and there's so much more film and from all over the world that we have access to. I think back then it was sort of possible to at least tell yourself that you, uh, to deceive yourself into thinking that you sort of knew film. And it's simply not possible anymore. I mean, there's, you know, you can know Iranian film, you can know Indonesian film, you can know the kind of uh, the mixed bag of 1950s and 60s Hollywood films that Anwar Congo in The Act of Killing loves so much. But you can't know film as a form anymore. You can explore it. You can explore it because it's because there's billions of people and millions of people probably involved with making film and and it's this sort of multi as a as a as a form cinema is this multifaceted uh collection of mirrors being held up to different aspects of human experience and also decoys that sort of distract us from what our experience is about there's both escapism and there's genuine moral artistic empathic reflection and these are two sort of and all of which 
if it succeeds, has to be entertaining. So mm. Mm. Um, we, we're in this, I just think that, yeah, I think I worried about that once. And then when I, you know, I didn't study to really be a documentary filmmaker per se, but when I first started making my first work in documentary was running a film workshop in this, uh, in the plantation where Adi Rukun's family comes from, in the look of silence yeah. for the workers. And we brought along, I mean, I had some friends who knew film and documentary film much better than I, and they suggested films to bring, but we, the workers, it was, it was Ramadan. And so it was important for everybody to break. People were starving by mm. the time the sun set. Yeah. Uh, and so it was important for everybody to eat right away, but the people had to work in the fields all day. So we would gather in this outside the house we were staying, uh, in the yard and put up a screen and we would eat and then watch a film every day. And then we would start talking about the film that the, that the plantation workers would start to make. And I, I learned about documentary at the same time as these plantation workers. Some of the films were we got subtitled into Indonesian ahead of the trip only to discover that most of them couldn't read. So mm -hmm. we had to read out wow. the subtitles. So I, I certainly... What kind of movies were you I, watching, Joshua? Sorry to interrupt. What kind of... The uh, curatorial, watched, curatorially, that's an interesting... It was really interesting. We Well, I mean, Indonesia had been overthrown. I mean, the, the, the government of Indonesia had been overthrown part by the CIA uh, in the U.S., and a military dictatorship had been installed. And when the dictatorship was installed, uh, was installed, the genocide, which my films, the legacy of which my films deal with, uh, happened. And six or seven years later uh, came the overthrow of Allende by Pinochet with the, with the help of the United States. And signs appeared around uh, Santiago in Chile saying, Jakarta se acerca, Jakarta is coming basically frightening people into the prospects of what will happen if there, when, when Allende is overthrown mm. by signs placed there by the CIA. So I chose the Battle of Chile, uh, the Battle for Chile by Patricio Guzman. I chose a really amazing, another Latin American film that, about the life and the dictator, under dictatorship in Argentina, uh, Hour of the Furnaces. We showed, uh, is it called Hearts and Minds? I feel like I'm getting this wrong. It's one of my favorite films. Hearts, Hearts, and, Minds. Hearts and Minds, yeah. That's actually yeah, the, and the Vietnam War film. That's one of uh, Michael Moore's go-to films in terms of curation. Yeah, we, yeah. we showed that. Yeah. Um, what was your, your criteria for selection? Were you worried about sh intellectually constipating your audience? I mean, well, I don't know if I know what that means. I think I have a sense, but... Such a great term. I want. I, I must demand more. What is inst intellectual constipation? Meaning, I, I'm going to. I'll. Can I, I want to use it precisely a thousand times let, after? This let me give you a source of inspiration or, or enlightenment. Can be so um, profound or so articulate that you miss, as you say, the the instinctual gut punch that you want to serve up. When you were choosing films in Indonesia in that context, what was your methodology? Were you thinking it's more about the presentation or it's more about the issues involved in that film? It was about the issues because I knew that the, the, that, that these were, this was an audience that had never seen documentary films uh, and had never uh, considered themselves capable of making a film. And they, and I, and I also believe that when you, strive to do something you need to have a certain kind of ambition which is not about career but it's about seeing the very best 
the, the work you most admire and talking about that work or the people who make that work as though they're your peers mm. before you know if you can achieve that level. Mm. So of course there's, you can watch the Olympic athlete and be intimidated by what they do and then feel sort of scared. But if you have, but that, that um, is less of a problem when you're working with people who have never been taught to aspire. American culture is so aspirational. It's like mm. you can grow up to be president. Right. And if you've been taught that no, you are from a family of slaves and communists. You are. You can grow up to be, if you're lucky, a, a slave, and your children can be slaves. And if you're lucky, you won't die of pesticide exposure in your 40s. Having examples uh, to which you strive are only intimidating if you have, if you have been taught to strive. But if you've been taught not to strive. Then, the, then why not? Okay, I'll try and strive. So mm. you have to first. You have to get that ego problem. It's really an ego problem. Wasn't there? Mm. And, and then secondly, there was not a strong sense of what makes a film good aesthetically. There was no prejudgment. It, it, the film either worked in an emotional, powerful way, or it didn't. And if it yeah. didn't, it's boring. So it was about choosing films that could. And I think I really tried to. It's interesting because I think I really tried to make my two films, even though they kind of played. Uh, my two Indonesian films, uh, even though they kind of played to art house audiences in the United States, uh, I really tried to make them for everybody in Indonesia. And in the same sense that that these films, I wish I was showing these, this selection of films to plantation workers mm. when we started, I, I felt that these films should be absolutely comprehensible to anyone from that. But there's no, there's no, there's nothing elliptical about them except there's not or there's nothing that 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 demands a particular kind of uh intellectual initiation mm, yeah uh, the audience they, they work for survivors who don't know how to read they work for these plantation workers that i described they work for indonesian intellectuals and they work for people everywhere regardless of their educational it's, it's it's the most delicate and most uh quixotic and uh it's a trojan horse you know or it's a, it's a kind of i don't want to say wolf in sheep's clothing as if you're doing something wolfish but it's a wonderful balancing act and i think the great filmmakers do it and and I, that's why i i think your work is extraordinary speaking with joshua oppenheimer i want to i want to bring us back into the quagmire of the mundane you use the j word uh judgment i often find judgment is the opposite of intellect, you know, or judgment is used. It seems like you're being intelligent, but you're not. Uh, do you think that's an antidote for intelligence, judgment? I do, I do, I do. I, one of the things that I most love about I really, I, 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 I resonate with that. One of the things I most love about living in Denmark is there's a humility in Danish culture. It's not a great nation. There's a wonderful line, actually, in uh, Jonathan Franzen's The Corrections about the mother character where it says that she like, she would take cruises around the Baltic and they would stop in places like Denmark and she said and I think the line was she likes her European country's minor <laughs> in the cruise at dinner when she would sit with strangers she wouldn't really have to know anything about it mm. you know she would look embarrassed for not knowing you know but the history of Estonia, because none of the passengers know about the history of Estonia. <laughs> so the same applies to Denmark, and that's bred a certain modesty, that and other aspects of the history, uh, which mean that people are openly curious. People, when you meet someone here, whether you're 
uh, whether even if you have no authority, you're not recognized as an expert in anything, people will just ask curious questions about who you are, what you've seen, what you're doing, why you're doing it, what you've discovered, uh, simply because, and there's no embarrassment about showing curiosity. I think in America, we're terribly embarrassed about showing our curi- innocence yeah. and our curiosity because that's an admission of ignorance. It's a vulnerability, and, yes. It's a weakness. And that's vulnerability, right? Yes. Because it makes us less powerful. Right. And right. I think I find when I come back to America, it's always jolting how many people, it's certainly not, I, I wouldn't use the word, uh, I wouldn't use the sort of Trumpian construction of white middle, white working class people, but sort of actually often white men who are quite, uh, you know, upper middle class or wealthy who will talk to me and and I'll feel like they're just sort of sizing me up. They're just trying to kind of judge where I am in the hierarchy, judge what yeah. what kind of animal I am. And, and, and I sort of feel like, well, that's sort of classification, taxonomy. And while taxonomy has a place in science, right, that's what, and, and there's a place in knowledge. We have to be able to discern. We have to be able to analyze. You know, why why is this animal that seems hairless producing milk through mammary glands? That that's taxonomy. That's classification. That's judgment. But that far too often becomes uh, confused with intelligence. And when it becomes hierarchical, it's a judgment. It's a classification of good and bad. Yes. Uh, and good taste and bad taste. Then it's just garbage. Because taste yeah. is the one. It's the one value that we all acknowledge is subjective, but what's we the all but? Feel, what's the but? <laughs> but but we all believe that our judgments are universally right. It's you know, fact. Like, yes, it's, it's a wonderful <laughs> film. Someone else says it's not. Well, they're wrong. You know, it's it's that's the, there's the B word. You know, intellectual bullying. There's a you know the uh, that drives me crazy as an educator. I know you teach as well. I mean. And and maybe it it it, it uh, vanishes as the educational scale scales up to PhD level and master's level, but I I I don't suspect it does. You know, I've taught master's students and PhD students, and intellect is is a is their form of Darwinism. You know, and as you say, I think in America we're ripe with that. Now I love what what you're talking about is humility and 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 curiosity taking the tension away but isn't there a danger without the the drive to something i'm not saying your arguments are absent a drive or an, or an inertia but is there is there a danger in in expectate an expectation free society to to have people accept mediocrity you know where, where does where how do we push things beyond their limits if we're not, I, I think that, I think there if is we're not a pushing. Sorry, I think you're right. I think there is a danger, but it's, and I think curiosity is a good place to start. Yes, in terms yes. Of pushing and, yes. and 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 empathic and compassionate curiosity. What is it like to be this person? And we could use a lot more of that. What right now in in Denmark, when we look at how the society's treating refugees, you know, what is it like to be this person who's walked across from the Middle East to here? Uh, try that. You know, Danes go to the Middle East on holiday. Try walking and, 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 and in the winter and across borders and carrying everything you belong. Jeez. What is that like? And, and we, we so, so, but I think that um, certainly there's a danger of, of conformism and there's a, a Scandinavian term for this. It's a negative term for this sort of 
sense of don't stick your neck out, don't try anything new. It's called Yanta Law, and it comes from a, a, a fictional parable of a town called Yanta, and law means law. And the law is that you must basically keep your head down and not stand out and don't think you're special. And, and it's something, it's a problem in Scandinavian societies. But the curiosity, which being eccentric is, I'll revert to a terrible genera- generalization here, but I think it, Den- Denmark is the weirdest of the of the three I, I would, Scandinavian countries. From the outsider's it's, perspective and having visited those, I would agree. But I mean that respectfully. <laughs> but, but I think people are, so I think there's maybe more space for sticking your neck out and being a little bizarre, but still there's a kind of, it's a kind of conformist place. And See Lars von Trier, yes, but anyway, go on. I mean, now you have this scandal at Zentropa where... Yeah, uh, I know, I know. Where, it's not a laughing matter. Peter Olbeck Jensen has come forward, kind of remained... Uh, Defiant, both first boastful about the yeah. about the sexual abuse and then defiant about it and and that's a, that's a kind of stick your neck out in a sticking your neck out I guess in a kind of bullying and stupid way yeah. it's certainly lacking in all compassion so so there, there's that too there's that tradition of eccentricity I guess I'm just saying that 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 curiosity is a good place to start I think it's a great place it's a, it's a lost art it's a, it's a scary word it's it, because it feels like you're an infant but I would I would prefer I'd, I'll I'll sign for that a couple of last thoughts um, how do you define that word genius I, and do you find it's overused or underused I think it's totally overused um, it's a word that we can use to express admiration for something that has opened our minds and our hearts in ways that we hadn't understood as possible before but it's basically a word bound up with ego I think it's a destructive word I mean I was just I think it's, it's simply a destructive word to add some grist for the mill uh, the original Latin is uh, a spirit a genius was a spirit um, at present at birth Right now, I feel like it's the tag of film by, you know, I think a lot of film became destructive. And I understand from a marketing perspective, when films became a film by Robert Altman, a film by Marty Scorsese, and those are, you know, a film by Robert Rodriguez. But I think it has some of that, that, that subtext to it. Um, you know what I was thinking this morning? We don't use it as much with women, I find. Do you feel it feels male in its gender? I'm sure entire lexicon for honoring accomplishment and 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 expressing a sense of humility before someone's accomplishment is gendered because our we just our culture doesn't it doesn't treat women's accomplishments uh in the same way that it treats men's accomplishments we see that that the very you know with the unequal pay for equal work it's just we don't treat women equally and it's shameful another word uh i wanted to get your t- thought on um, is masterpiece. This is a word that I think over the last five years, last 10 years, has been rendered uh, silly. What about, what do you think? That's a word I, I'm afraid I'm guilty of using, especially if it's a new film that I really know I fear will fall under the radar and I can present it to somebody and they will take my opinion seriously. I'll often use it to ensure that people pay attention. But I think it's a dangerous word as well because it implies mastery. Right? It implies the artist's mastery over their methods, over yes. their work. And actually, that's the opposite of what great art, I think, often comes from, which is an openness. And again, this word humility, an openness to the unknown. And we can't be masters of the unknown. So rather than uh, sort of working material with master mastery that we know should take the 
a certain shape and it's a, it's an exquisite architecture because we are masters, shouldn't we rather see our work as exploration? And I, I, I there's storytelling, and the, but when storytelling is really, I, I'm working now on a fiction project. It's my first time oh, I've done cool. this. Oh, cool! Congratulations, man. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm writing a, revising a screenplay now, and it's, it's actually a musical. English, and, English language. Yeah, in English language, and it's how cool. It's really what I've come to understand is that that process of through first we wrote first you have a treatment then you have a script then you revise the script and you revise it and so on that process of of, of revision takes you deeper and deeper right. and deeper to your understanding of what we human beings are and that's actually uh, just as it's 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 just as richly exploratory and just as rich an exploration of what we are and what our world and our universe is as, as nonfiction filmmaking. I was worried about that at first. And I was in a discussion once with Werner uh, Herzog where he said, and I was sort of saying, I don't use the word storytelling to describe what I do. And he correct, correctly pointed out, but maybe that's because you work on documentary. But I think the interesting thing as I revise this screenplay is that I find that refining a story and really finding the kind of causal drama where one you know one moment leads to another leads to another with a sort of dramatic inevitability even if i don't mean predictability inevitability um that's about condensing all the themes and questions and problems that you're exploring and the, the, the the insights and wisdom that you're finding along the way into a kind of organic structure. The story should embody that wisdom. And so it's a form of finding the right story is both exploration and craft. Mm. And, and, I, and, it, but it's, and one may be very skilled and one may be masterful at uh, marshalling the right skill at the right moment. But it's never, if you're really open to the material and it's a genuine exploration then you're humbled and you're not a master of it you're 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 changed by it it's just as you hope the audience will be changed by it and you'll be in unfamiliar territory un and uncomfortable territory in the case of my work as, as much as possible do you think Werner Herzog is a master I, I, I <laughs> first of all uh, Werner, he, he would say I, no. I, he would say no. <laughs> I, I have to say, I have to say that Werner is for me one of the very greatest filmmakers who's ever lived. If Werner has, you can look at. He's made so many films, and I, I think that you know, ten or fifteen of them, I, I would say, are among my very favorite, most amazing films I've ever seen. And I'm not just talking about sort of. The documentaries that he's gotten quite a bit of attention for recently are Fitzcarraldo. I'm talking about earlier stuff like Strozek and even Dwarf Started Small and Signs of Life and uh, Aguirre Wrath of God. So I, I, I just reject the word master. And actually, there are filmmakers who you see kind of a masterful approach to craft. Mm. And I think Werner... Werner maybe is a master of presence and empathy. He's mm. very present with people, mm. and he's very empathic. Mm. It's a weird, but you wouldn't normally it's, use the word master in you that know, regard. But, but has a hierarchy that Werner's empathy kind of abolishes. We should, we need to, though. I, I think you're stumbling, if I can use the word, um, into a really important moment that 
I wish we did refer to people as of masters of those articles of presence, of commitment, of empathy, of curiosity. I think master always has a kind of manifestation, a physical manifestation to it, uh, a tangible manifestation. There's nothing wrong with that, and I think we can wrestle with it as you are and I am. But I love that you've come around to the fact that he may have a kind of emotional, not emotional mastery, but a, that a, a no, fa- he, he a, does have a, that. an ephemeral, a- yes, but an ephemeral form of mastery. Wouldn't it be nice if I could get a master's degree in presence? I, I, I would love that. I would love to teach a course in presence and award masters and doctorates. I, I know it sounds a little funny and glib, but it's not meant to. The other question to, to close on a bit is you've been on the jury of some film festivals within the last couple of years. Venice, what's that been like? You know, we're talking about a different form of judgment, but was that conflicting at all? You know, now we're into the realm of of classifying films and judging films. First of all, if you ask what was the experience at Venice like, the most important thing was it was this wonderful, it was just lucky in a way that we were a wonderful group. We, I think there was real love among us by the, by the end of that festival. And that meant that we had these amazing uh, conversations about how the films affected us. I do believe that you can judge uh, pretension in film. I think you can judge <laughs> cliche, yes. sentimentality, moral dishonesty, typically psychological dishonesty. You can see a film with an extremely interesting idea and, pre- and, and uh, visual language where the it's just simply not true. I mean, I think we as artists, we strive for truth Mm. or we should strive for truth. And that, that you can see why a film premised on what I call sort of the star Wars morality, where you divide the world into good guys and bad guys is never in my mind going to be a great film because even if there's moments of truth within it, the overall story is a lie. And I think you can see many films where characters don't, react honestly with each other where the and there's psychology just there's no emotional truth to the to the film and, and and those are things that one can actually discern and judge and it's a privilege to be able to do that particularly uh at a larger festival like venice because you're able to lend the jury against the millions and millions of dollars that go into marketing some of these films our voice as a jury is a small one actually but you are able to use your voice to call spades spades when need be and to, to point out the truth against the marketing machine, which will say that everything is a masterpiece and everything <laughs> is right. brilliant and everything is the film of the year and everything <laughs> is unmissable and everything right. is thrilling. Well, and also to wit, um, before we say goodbye to Joshua Oppenheimer so generously giving us his time, uh, Venice is actually historically the festival responsible for Rashomon. I mean, you can make the argument that Rashomon would have been Rashomon at some point, but uh, it was submitted unbeknownst, slightly unbeknownst to Kurosawa uh, by a, a curator at Venice who wanted more uh, Asian-influenced films and selected Rashomon. Uh, Kurosawa had finished it, thought it was, would not uh, be buoyant. He went fishing, as the story goes, and his wife, uh, on returning, his wife said, you've won the Venice Film Festival. And he was apoplectic uh, in a good way. Uh, and then that you know, led to overseas screenings and on and on and on. So the, the last thing, Joshua, um, I tell my students that I don't go to the movies to get the news. But I'm going to ask you as the author of films that I think have informed 
Do you think art can make you smarter? Do you think a movie can make you smarter? My simple answer is yes. And I think if we go back to what I said earlier about uh, trying to make the act of killing and the look of silence to uh, essentially work for anyone in Indonesia, I was talking about something that's really at the heart of this. I was saying that uh, you can make, you can create a work that provides new information that functions like the news that tells us something we didn't know and puts it in a context where maybe we can actually do some good with it. At least that's what the news ought to do. Uh, <laughs> you, you can, you can do that. Most documentaries, I think, unfortunately, these days fall into that category. They're kind of an extension, a kind of long form of journalism mm. that that is otherwise underfunded and lacking in the U.S. media for the most part. But I, but I think what art does is a kind of, maybe use the word pure, I would maybe say, uh, say deeper, but it, it offers a kind of deeper form of in, informing or of revelation, which is maybe not the window where you look out onto some distant phenomenon that you hadn't known of before. You look out onto the world and learn something new about it, but actually that of a mirror where you mm -hmm. look in, your, in the mirror and you are confronted with some truth, painful, mysterious, difficult to grasp, that somehow in the moment you see it, you're shocked, but not by the new, not by, oh, I didn't know that before, but actually by the recognition. I think at its most powerful, it's a terrible moment of recognition. We say, oh my God, is that really me? Is that really us? Is that really our world? And because it's recognition, it's a rhetorical question because mm. the next thought is, yes, of course it is. Right. And that's when you know you've seen something true. Mm -hmm. I always say uh, the great teachers don't teach us what to think. They teach us how to think. I've never been in one of your classes, although, you know, I correct that. I feel like I just was. Uh, I would imagine you to be an extraordinary teacher. And I want to thank you for uh, informing us today. I've learned a lot. Uh, maybe the next time we do this, we can do it in Denmark. I'd love to to smell the aromas uh, of of your culture and dig in a little more deeply. Thank you so much, Joshua, for being with us here. And all best to you and your family now and onward. Thank you so much. Take care, Joshua. Bye-bye. I want to thank Joshua Oppenheimer for being here on Murmur with me this week. Every week, you can be with me, just the way Joshua was. <laughs> MurmurRadio.com, M-U-R-M-U-R Radio, one word, dot com. Social handles, at MSF Murmur, MSF Murmur. Oh, what else? Oh, email me. Hello. MurmurRadio at gmail.com. Email me and I will uh, send you some genius wishes and dreams. Every week, Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher. See us, smart people. See you soon.